0: Let's go be logical Christians. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Remember when this used to be a storybook? Not just simply the news we read or hear or watch every day. Never in modern history have we ever been asked or expected to believe that up is down, solid is liquid, black is white, as much as we are today. Speaking of today, on today's episode, first we're all going to be mooned, and it'll happen faster than you think. Then we'll see that your facts are no match for my facts, and finally we'll tell the fairiest tale of them all. So grab your telescope, know what you believe, and stop ruining my planet. (laughs) I know it's hard to believe, but once again, here we go. I told you so. Nobody likes to say that, ever. Or more accurately, everybody says that they don't want to say I told you so, usually right before saying, but I told you so. Now, as a believer in true truth, as your ever-trustworthy host, dude, I mean, saying I told you so, that's like one of the most satisfying things ever, right? I mean, let's be honest here, okay? The alternative is to just constantly admit that you were wrong. I mean, Raise your hand if you just love being able to tell everyone all the time that you're wrong yet again. Anytime there's a disagreement, a debate, the point for both sides is to be able to look at the other and say, I told you so. So it's always fun when the religion of scientism confirms the truth of the Bible. Found on Mashable.com, headline, NASA finds Earth's moon didn't need hundreds of years to form. Try ours. Boom. Told you so. But I have a feeling this isn't as big of a win as I'd hope, as in I kind of doubt that the conclusion reached is, oh, God did it, just like the Bible says. Uh, but I could be wrong. I'd hate to have to be and I told you so. <laughs> hmm. Oh, well, okay. So look, the byline of the article. Quote, Watch a violent collision simulation that could have spawned the moon. Okay, well, I mean, God could have used a collision to create the, uh, No, that's just a terrible, unbiblical argument. Let's see what they've concluded is absolutely, positively, speculation and guesswork. Shall we? It's interesting that they soften your defenses a little by humanizing the moon and the Earth. He's just the Earth's little buddy scooting around the big, vast, dark space together and just following him wherever he goes... What they say is, quote, When the universe has seemed a vast, lonely place, people have taken comfort in Earth's steadfast companion, the moon, ever marching through space with his planet on an odyssey around the sun. (sighs) Now, this is a way to personify or anthropomorphize the moon and the Earth and the sun. Basically, they're trying to give the impression that evolution is, in fact, an intelligent creative force as that's what they truly believe, whether they admit that or not. But then the scientific facts take center stage. Okay, no, no, you got me, you know me too well by now, there's no science in any of this. Uh, Sadly, 4.5 billion years ago, there was no moon, and then they add the fact that scientists are still baffled as to how this moon came about. Yeah, Of that I have no doubt, that's probably one of the only factual statements in this entire article, but let's continue on. So the theory I've always heard, and the article states, this is since the 1980s, is that the moon was created when a large planet, quote, perhaps the size of Mars, crashed into Earth billions of years ago, spattering a world's worth of gas, magma, and metals that forged the moon over tens to hundreds of years. But a new study has just come out from the Astrophysical Journal Letters, which is my favorite uh, journal Letters that says we might all be wrong about this 40-year-old theory. Now, I read the abstract of the study. I understood about seven words. Now, it's not exactly true, but I'll be honest. Their abstract is it's above my head. But what I glean from their abstract, and, and you're more than welcome to read it for yourself, the links in the notes is that there are a few contested areas in the Earth impact slow formation of the moon theory. Those being the fact that the Earth and moon rock samples seem to have the same composition down to the degree of isotopes and the angular momentum. The speed the moon rotates around the Earth is hard to justify with the long formation theory. The isotopes, I'm guessing, and this is really way out of my realm of knowledge, but as stuff breaks down over time, more isotopes form, I think. And I think what they're saying is that if the Earth had a jump start on formation as compared to the moon, they should not appear to be the same age when analyzed. I don't know. Leave a comment if you got a totally different opinion. If I'm totally wrong, I'll correct it in an upcoming episode. But they also state toward the end of the article that there is a controversy with the idea that a foreign planetary body did the impacting, as samples from the Earth and the Moon are very similar, apparently, but samples from, say, Mars meteorites are very different. So if it was a foreign body impact, wouldn't there be chemical composition evidence of that? And apparently there isn't. I don't know. Now, they use more sciencey words, but those are the two basic issues. So, to rid themselves of these problems, they proposed, studied, and, get ready for it, modeled a simulation of a rapid moon formation. So, embedded in this article is a simple yet visually just satisfying computer animation of this model that simulates a very young, as yet molten Earth being impacted by another molten orb, maybe a quarter to half the size of the molten Earth ball, They say about Mars-sized. We'll call that medium blob. This impact occurs so that medium blob hits about three-quarters of itself into Earth blob, massively distorting and flinging off molten Earth goo into space. As medium blob emerges from Earth blob, it appears that the Earth actually absorbed some of medium blob, while a large flinging arc of molten goo stuff shoots out, and away from earth blob and what we'll now call small blob forms into a ball but apparently is no match for earth blob and is sucked right back in but farther away from earth blob is what we'll call tiny blob that too starts to form into a ball now although medium blob is gone and small blob is consumed by earth blob starting to get hungry here. Small Blob actually has enough gravitational force to fling Tiny Blob into a motion roughly in an orbit around Earth Blob. And you guessed it, Tiny Blob is now Moon Blob. The only sound on the animation is a haunting, plinking, lullaby kind of sound, but there are subtitles, and they end with, quote, The simulation opens up new possibilities for the moon's evolution and will help researchers better understand the intertwined history of the Earth and the moon. Mashable then goes into quite a bit of fanboying about the simulation, but they do reveal what I think should give people a lot of pause. Now, it won't, not for most people, but we aren't most people now, are we? They say, quote, scientists have run computer models of the giant impact in lower resolution for years without two bodies splitting apart. In this case, NASA teamed up with Durham University's Institute of Computational Cosmology in England to perform simulations that were up to 1,000 times higher resolution than the standard, testing and observing different crash angles, speeds, planet spins, and sizes. Okay, then they do a little bit more fanboying, but that's really about it. So what have we learned? Uh, Nothing. Bottom line, we've literally learned nothing. If I were to sum up what they discovered, I would sum it up by saying, if the moon formed this way, then this is the way the moon formed. I've said it before, I love science, and no, I don't want to marry it, but there's science and there's scientism. This is scientism. This is literally the argument that evolutionary scientists have against young Earth creationists. As Answers in Genesis says, we all have the same evidence, but we have a very different worldview. So I look at the moon and I read, and God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth." And it was so. And God made the two great lights: the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day." And they'd say, prove that God did it. And I can't, but this is what God's Word tells me, and the Bible is proven right over and over again through historical records and archaeological finds, etc. And it's not a leap to infer that although nobody but God saw this creation, if we can trust Him and His Word on the rest of the Bible, why not this? And they'd say, well, you just say God did it, and you can't prove it. But this is exactly what they're saying also. But they're saying that the Big Bang did it, or evolution did it. We say that the Bible tells us that God said it happened this way. They say that their model says it happened that way. The difference is that in the case of the creationist, we have an intelligent, omnipotent God who is God over every molecule and atom and all of creation, and what he says goes. They say that random chance and chaos created all this. So, I quickly want to touch on what exactly it takes for this model to reflect a reality that so-called scientists believe they can use to describe how the moon formed. I've mentioned before that models are only as good as the modeler and the inputs and assumptions the modeler uses to make his model. This model is made up of almost 100% assumptions. This is quite literally an entire fantasy wrapped inside a massive coat of fantasy evolution. The joke is that if you say a frog turns into a prince quickly, that's a fairy tale. And if the frog turns into a prince over millions of years, that's evolution. Well, what we have here is literally a fairy tale. They use some science like gravitational pull and impact energy, etc. But even those are highly assumed as they have no idea what those values would be for their model either it's okay i said quickly let's do that so off the top of my head what did they have to assume all right well first the size of the earth blob as the assumption is that the earth blob was impacted and per the simulation it absorbed some but not all of the impactor the initial size of the earth blob had to be assumed as did the final size of the earth blob uh, second density composition and level of solidification of the earth blob All of those factors dictate exactly how medium blob will interact with Earth blob when the impact occurs. Number three, gravitational pull of Earth blob. This is dictated by three of the four factors I just cited, size, density, and composition. The larger, the more densely packed, and the heavier the elements of Earth blob all dictate what the gravitational pull of Earth blob will be. Fourth, size of medium blob, and for the sake of time, density, composition, level of solidification, and gravitational pull of medium blob as well, all for exactly the same reasons as those I've mentioned above. Five, speed of impact, just a slight bit slower or faster than the simulation would result in a massively different result. Number six, angle and location of impact, same as speed. If either of these factors is slightly off, you get a massively different result. Number seven, amount of medium blob absorbed, size of small blob, whipping action of the molten earth goo, and the flinging off of tiny blobs soon to be moon blob. All of these factors above dictate the exact amount of medium blob absorbed, the amount of goo that makes it out the other side, and the exact way all of that goo will react when it exits the other side. Number eight, the rotation of the moon blob. Both the rotation around the earth and the rotation about its axis had to be perfect, which requires perfection, as I just described, and the perfect reaction and reabsorption of medium blob in order to whip the moon blob around earth blob and about itself. Number nine, earth blob rotation, and let's throw in medium blob rotation. Per the Big Bang Theory, everything was compressed down to nothing. And all of that nothing got hotter and hotter and spun faster and faster and finally blew itself apart. That means that every last particle of all of that nothing that created everything that was spinning when it blew apart was also spinning. All the same rotational direction. So how are some bodies rotating or orbiting backward? That's for another time. So when these blobs collided, is that what set the rotational speed of the Earth blob? Number 10. Earth orbit around the sun. We're concerned with the moon's orbit around the earth, but if the earth blob was impacted from which direction, I mean that's important, was it this impact that set it in orbit around the sun? And every scientist that knows anything about this earth will tell you that this earth exists within a very tiny orbital band that could potentially sustain life. So did medium blob impact get it into the right place? I mean, are you getting the idea here? This is literally just a fantasy story. In order for this model, this simulation, to give these scientists the results they were looking for, absolutely every aspect cited above and probably dozens or hundreds more would have to be nearly 100% perfect. And these factors are so closely interrelated and intertwined that a small deviation in one will compound and snowball through the others and result in a simulated mess. In order to make a model like this work, they have to start with the final result, the observational science of what we see today. Then they have to back-calculate some specific points, like how close the moon would have needed to be for it to end up where it is today, etc. They would have likely plugged in boundaries for densities, blob sizes, maybe a few other things. Then they would have let the simulation run many, many iterations of every combination of assumption possible to result in what they wanted as i said this is a fairy tale evolution is a statistical impossibility to begin with like literally it is it's calculated as impossible this is also a literal impossibility and this is one moon for one planet in one solar system in one galaxy in the universe so the theory i guess is that this sort of thing happened Not an infinite number of times, but according to estimates found on BigThink.com, there are 10 septillion planets orbiting stars and another 100 septillion to 1 non-nillion planets not orbiting stars. How many of those unfathomable number of planets have moons? How many moons were created like this? I mean, we're literally talking about a fantasy land. And let me throw this one last fact out there. As I said, the Big Bang Theory says everything in the entire universe today. At one point, a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away... Well, okay, you get the point. Every bit of matter in the universe was crushed down to the point that it was nothing. That nothing was spinning. It spun faster and faster, got hotter and hotter, until it finally exploded. It just blew apart. When it did this, as I said, everything should be rotating in the same direction, which it's not... But there should never have been any impacts of anything hitting anywhere ever anything if you put a stick of dynamite in the middle of a wad of marbles in a vacuum when that dynamite explodes the marbles will all shoot away from each other they'll never impact each other ever what about stars exploding you ask you know they could cause changes in directions of space stuff Well, you literally can't get stars as particles would have flung away from each other and space contained nothing because everything was all part of the Big Bang. So with no resistance, no wind, nothing to hit, how would particles bang into each other and join together? That's okay though, because evolutionary science literally discounts all principles of physics until a few milliseconds after the Big Bang. That gives them enough time to make impossible things possible before they kick physics back in. The nefarious aspect of this is that these models are created by scientists, expertly displayed and illustrated, peer-reviewed, which really means nothing these days in most cases, and passed off as fact when they're nothing remotely close to an actual scientific fact. The scientists are either so engrossed in their theory that they can't see the contradictions and impossibilities, or they just don't care. Because it must be evolution. The idea of a god simply cannot be true. But when you look at our moon, is it easier to believe that all of these assumptions happened exactly how they simulated billions of years ago resulting in what we see today? Or is it easier to believe that an intelligent, all-powerful creator god used his infinite power to place the moon where it needed to be in order to act as a light in the darkness and control the tides which are crucial to the existence of life on this planet? The sad thing is, All of this intelligence, the laws of logic and reason, the laws of physics, mathematics, the scientific method, curiosity, and the quest for knowledge and wisdom, they're all given by God, and they're all being used and misused, and many more than these, in order to attempt to prove that there is no God, and in the process deceive billions of people. Since the Big Bang Theory was first made up about 1950, we've had about 4 billion people around the world that have died. That's 70 years ago. Darwin handcrafted his ridiculous and, and actually racist theory of evolution through natural selection about 115 years earlier than that. I'd feel comfortable saying that in that period of time another, I don't know what, 3 more billion people have died? So let's say that since the Darwinian evolutionism theory, 7 billion people have died around the world. We have 8 billion people today in the world, of which a solid 50-60% to 60% of the world believes in evolution so let's say another four billion people believe in evolution today how many of these billions of people buy into these nonsensical illogical godless fairy tales and close their eyes for the last time expecting nothing just just blink out only to instantly realize how mistaken and how deceived, how misled they were, and how they were responsible to figure out if what they were being told was real or not. But instead, they focused on day-to-day things rather than eternal things. So don't be deceived. Don't let articles written as fact, don't let neat looking animations, and don't let big scientific words fool you into thinking that they must have the answers. This is important. A lot of people don't think this evolution versus creation thing is really that big of a deal, but if you're willing to seed God's inspired and protected word for the first few chapters of Genesis, how do you have a leg to stand on anywhere else in the Bible? Know what you believe, stand for the truth, and then help others find the answers that they're looking for. Everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. This was a quote made by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat former senator from New York. Moynihan was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was an ambassador to the United Nations for a short time, worked as an advisor to Richard Nixon, was an ambassador to India, but the bulk of his career was spent in the Senate. He made this statement in the Washington Post in 1983, which was based on an earlier quote by James R. Schlesinger, a Republican and American economist who also worked for a short time under Nixon and Ford as the Secretary of Defense. He said that, quote, everybody is entitled to his own views. Everybody is not entitled to his own facts. This is similar to a quote, actually one I like even better, quote, Every man has a right to his own opinion, but no man has a right to be wrong in his facts. This was said by Bernard Baruch, who was an American financier, who later worked for President Woodrow Wilson, ugh, with regard to World War I, the Paris Peace Conference, and the League of Nations, as well as other positions. Now, My point in giving you this background, and there are many other people who made similar statements in the past, is that it used to be that left right or other we all used to agree that opinions were fine but facts were indisputable well mark down the date of october 12 2022 that concept has flatlined and i'm not sure if we can get the heart beating again or not back in 2019 john stossel posted a pair of videos daring to question climate change well the fact checkers i use that term very loosely checked his facts, and decided to censor his videos. Based on the fact checks, Facebook adjusted the algorithms, which either mutes or dramatically reduces the traffic to posts. Specifically, this drastically affected Stossel's traffic. So he sued, as this is his livelihood that they're messing with. Now, before we go any further, who is John Stossel? Well, Stossel is what I would call an investigative journalist. He's a television newsman, a journalist, a pundit. He's of the libertarian flavor of political persuasion. So he would generally have the idea of letting the truth be the truth. Let it be known. Now just leave us alone, government. From 1981 to 2009, he was a correspondent for 2020. In 2009, he left to go to Fox to host a weekly show on Fox Business, as well as specials and weekly appearances on The O'Reilly Factor. In 2019, he, like many others, launched his own online platform called Stossel TV, on which he put out weekly videos on his various social media platforms. He is highly decorated, having 19 Emmy Awards by 2001. Five times he was honored by the National Press Club for his excellence in consumer reporting. He's won the George Polk Award for Outstanding Local Reporting and a Peabody Award, as well as being awarded the Chapman University Presidential Medal, which has been rarely awarded in 150 years. And he received an honorary doctorate from Universidad Francisco Merequin. Milton Friedman has sung his praises, as has Steve Forbes, P.J. O'Rourke, Rourke, as well as other individuals and publications. Now, why do you care about any of this? Well, found on HollywoodReporter.com, headline, Judge Dismisses John Stossel's Defamation Suit Against Facebook Over Fact-Checking. Okay, well, what happened? As I said, Stossel dropped a couple videos in 2019 on his Facebook page, which were fact-checked, stating that he was factually incorrect in what he presented. This affected his algorithms, his traffic, his reputation, and thus his revenue stream. He appealed to Facebook, but Facebook simply said that it was out of their hands, which is a lie, because the fact-checkers checkered his facts and deemed them not facty enough. So. I, having seen Stossel on a number of occasions, believe that he is uh, pretty well buttoned up in what he presents. Now, did he have incorrect facts in these specific videos? I'm not sure, and I don't care. Based on history, I'd say he was most likely correct, but that being said, it literally doesn't matter for our review. I've linked one video in the notes. You can fact check it if you'd like. Since Facebook wouldn't lift the fact-check claim, Stossel sued them for defamation, since presenting well-researched, factual pieces is literally his reputation. As of October 12, 2022, the judge dismissed his suit. Now, The judge in question is U.S. District Judge Virginia DeMarchi. I don't know much about her. There isn't a lot of information out there about her. But I do know this. She shouldn't be a judge or a person that gives advice or someone that attempts to interpret or rule on the Constitution or law in general, or someone to comment on the very, very basic rules of life and concepts of common sense. Honestly, Stossel's suit should stand and she should be dismissed after this ruling because she's not ruling based on anything but her own feelings and biases or something. I really don't know, to be honest. Now, in her dismissal of the case, she said that the fact check program that Facebook utilizes, quotes, reflects a subjective judgment about the accuracy and reliability of assertions, you know, that were made in whatever was posted. In this case, an investigative video. She went on to say, quote, simply because the process by which content is assessed and a label applied is called a fact check does not mean that the assessment itself is an actionable statement of objective fact. Okay, did you follow that? What she said is that the Facebook fact-checking program, the system that Facebook asserts is a collection of expert sources that independently review posts to ensure they're not spreading misinformation, doesn't have to be fact-based. They're judging facts subjectively, not Objectively, or more simply, they're judging facts based on their opinion rather than actual, verifiable, real facts. So you can't sue them because it's their opinion if they believe your facts are wrong. I mean, are we living in a clown world here? And yes, yes, we are. I've posted a lot of things on Facebook, to my creditors' shame, depending on your worldview, and a lot of them are somewhat controversial, most of the time by design, I'll admit that. I used to regularly get in debates, sometimes heated with, uh, well, it was usually me against a hive of Kens and Karens, as they all have hive mind, and if you poke the hornet's nest, uh, you get the entire gang coming after you. And although it was usually one on, I don't know, maybe 10 to 20, I was still winning because I had the facts, I would still call these fair fights, as I chose to be there. I chose to continue in the debate, and we were all saying our piece. The problem with the new opinion-based fact-checker system is that it's no longer a fair fight. I mean, sure, it may not result in a ban from Facebook, although it could, but it does affect your traffic, and if you rely on that, that could be crushing. And the more fact-checks you accumulate, the worse it gets, and there's virtually nothing you can do about it. Now, I've had probably a half a dozen or so fact checks on articles that I've reposted. I've had a 24-hour ban on Facebook, and I have a permanent ban on Twitter right now because I dare to call a trans man a woman in reality and a trans woman an actual man. Although biologically verifiably true, a simple statement of fact, one of the twits at Twitter decided I was mean and poof, all gone. For me, I didn't really use Twitter that much, so you know, not a massive loss. I don't have a lot of friends on Facebook, and that's by personal choice, so the fact checks don't really affect me too much, at least not that I know of. But I can tell you that the fact checks I have had were generally based on opinion of the other party, the so-called experts, or at the very best, an alternative interpretation of the data that was just obviously wrong. And that's to be expected. I mean, everyone who's ever posted anything about the climate or homosexual, anything, transgender, whatever, abortion, if it goes against the accepted narrative at all, we all know that we have a good chance of being fact-checked and that the check is really just a woke opinion by some Cheeto dust-fingered, extra-full-figured, heavy-breathing woke sitting in his mom's basement, just incredulous that someone would dare think something different than he Now, the amazing part about this entire article is the fact that this so-called judge—and I'd like her qualifications as a judge to be fact-checked—she actually said what she said. A global social media tool where an estimated 35% of the entire world population logs on and uses every day has what they claim to be fact-checking experts— that can have dramatic effects on your posts and she said that the fact checking is subjective so they don't actually have to use facts to call your facts non-factual. I think what Stossel needs to do is write a response to the judge to tell her that she's not in fact a judge because he doesn't believe that she is. Problem solved. Of course, this kind of subjectivism with regard to facts doesn't really work in the real world. We all know that. So what he needs to do is start the appeal process and work it up and up through the system If Facebook is going to enjoy special privileges within the United States system, and they do, and they're going to set up a system that limits, edits, or mutes free speech, and they do, they need to be held to the highest of standards. I hold out little hope that they will be, but still, little hope is better than no hope. But really, what do we expect in an unsaved world that's completely unhitched itself from true truth and instead embraced moral relativism and post-modernity? We as Christians are always shaken to the core when a secular person, group, or company acts unsaved. XYZ Company gave money to Planned Parenthood. I shall now show my displeasure by not shopping there this week. If we Christians in today's world literally boycotted everything that didn't embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior, uh, we'd all be dead in weeks. If you want to boycott, that's totally your call. But if you don't want to boycott, that's also your call and you're not wrong either way. More accurately, you're not sinning either way unless you are violating your conscience in what you're doing. But as I said, we all live, well, not so much in a yellow submarine, although many days I think that would be preferable. No, we're all living in the ungodly era of postmodernity and moral relativism. It simply stated, we're living in a time when there is no such thing as truth. Whatever is true for you is true truth. And even if my truth, which is also true truth, conflicts with your truth, we're both right. Crazy, right? And once again, this is exactly what God designed if we lived in opposite worlds. See, after Moses remade the tablets for God to rewrite his Ten Commandments on, the Lord descended in the cloud to the mountain where Moses was and proclaimed his name. He said, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Now, conversely, we see that Satan, as Jesus said, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Over and over, the Psalms extol the fact, the real fact, that God is truth. Jesus, again, praying to the Father for his apostles, asked that God would sanctify them in his truth because his word is truth. Notice that Jesus didn't say that God's word was true, but rather that it is truth. And this is the danger in the truth, in having an unmovable foundation of absolute truth. See, if we have a foundation of truth, then Satan can't convince mankind that the Bible is a myth. God is a figment of the imagination of brainless Neanderthals that were scared of thunder and lightning, that rules are for squares, man, just do what makes you feel good, or that the fruit would not bring about death. Satan doesn't necessarily try a frontal assault on us. He didn't tell Eve that there was no God. You know, it was all a lie. That wouldn't have worked. He simply said that what she and Adam were told wasn't exactly true. He then appealed to their pride, and eat they did. He tried to use the same sort of tactic on Jesus when he quoted actual true scripture, uh, but again twisted the meaning, trying to get Jesus to falter and worship him. And today we see that it's not necessarily a direct attack on the Christian faith, or the Bible, or God, but rather a direct attack on the existence of any truth at all. I listen to a show, or podcast, radio, YouTube, whatever, called Wretched Radio. Every Wednesday, the host, Todd Friel, does Witness Wednesday, where he'll typically go out to a college campus and engage students in conversation. His goal is not to notch his belt with conversions, but to discuss the beliefs of the student and communicate some true truth. Many, many times, you'll find that the students are very receptive to the discussion. They're very kind. They have nothing bad to say about Christianity. But at the same time, they state that if that's what he believes, well, hey, that's true for him, and that's fine. They have a different truth. See, Satan doesn't need for people to hate Christianity. I mean, it's fine if they do. He just needs them to question the existence of truth, true truth. Once that's done, and the lusts of the world are dangled in front of people, it's very simple to have very nice, very kind, very loving, hell-bound, unrepentant sinners. We've now been living in the postmodern world for at least a few generations, and we're seeing the creep of no true truth. Everywhere. In our specific article, we even see it in the court system, where we have an actual judge say that it's fine if a self-proclaimed expert uses his truth to negate your truth, because truth is simply relative. So Stossel has no grounds to lay claim on the truth, because as Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And we see the absolute slide into depravity when we remove truth, as the next domino to fall is moral relativism. Not only is my truth true for me, but my morals are right for me. Think homosexuality, think abortion, think drugs, think of the latest transgender craze. How about reparations, rioting when you don't like something, looting, or as I call it, theft, because you believe it's owed to you, and the list is endless. Even worse, we've decided to defund or otherwise neuter our police force because who are they to say someone is breaking the law? We've legalized drugs, which are not the same as cigarettes or alcohol. We're defending perverted men, barely dressed as nasty, ugly women, thrusting their crotches in the face of children while sending the FBI to arrest Grandma for singing hymns at a baby murder mill. Once truth becomes personal for everyone, morality necessarily becomes personal for everyone as well. Then you get a situation as in Noah's day, when the thought of the hearts of all men were only evil continuously. Nor if you get to the point of the perversion of Sodom, or one of the weirdest accounts in the Bible in Judges 19, that is almost a carbon copy of the angels at Sodom, capped off by the final verse in the book of Judges, In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The movement of postmodernity and moral relativism displays that there is no longer a king in America, the king being God himself, and everyone is doing whatever they consider to be true and right in their own eyes. Unfortunately, the answer isn't as simple as voting in the right party or making more laws. The only answer to what we're seeing today, the only answer to getting judges to actually rule on truth and facts, is to return to the only source of true truth. We must appeal to the inherent laws written on the hearts of man to display what we all know is right to use the law as a measuring stick in order to show people that there is a true truth and that nobody measures up, which requires us to search for a savior that does measure up to do it for us. So how do we do this? Well, we don't. We aren't capable of opening the eyes of the lost to the truth of the gospel. That's for the Holy Spirit to do. Our job is to just be the conduit, the hands and feet, the mouth, the speaker of truth. We are to go into the world and make disciples. I recently heard a sermon by someone, I can't remember who, who said that the English translation makes that sound like we're all supposed to be missionaries heading into what we think of as the mission field. But that phrase would be better stated as, as we are going in the world. So as we live our lives, make disciples. This is why we should always be ready to tell others about the hope that we have, about the truth we hold, about the reality of this world, of sin, of death, and of eternal life through Jesus Christ. When it's hot or cold, rainy, snowy, cloudy, or sunny, or if there are storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, or earthquakes, wind or smog, wildfires, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, or you have a hangnail... You break a toe, your car runs out of gas, or you get your feelings hurt. The internet blips out, or you get a spam phone call. You have more toots than usual, or maybe less toots, or none of those, or all of those, or or any combination of those. What we know for sure is that all of that is absolutely 100% the result of climate change. Quote, climate change is a global emergency. We have no time to waste in taking action to protect Americans' lives and futures. Can I get an amen, please? Yes, from you in the back as well. Well, welcome back to episode six of our look at the Democrat Party platform. Since you're perceptive and since you know you're a climate sinner slash denier, I'm sure you've guessed that we've reached the part in their promise to America of... Quote, combating the climate crisis and pursuing environmental justice. <laughs> and who doesn't want, no, nay, nay, need. Who doesn't need that? In fact, a New York Times poll polled 1,000 people just recently, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, and they found that the top issue overall heading into this midterm election is, well, I mean, the economy at 26%, of course, and, and then followed by inflation at 18%. Other is at 9%, closely followed by the state of democracy at 8%. And then we get to finally, well, a tie for abortion and immigration at 5%. Polarization and division came in at 4%. But then it's right there. Crime, Trump and the Republicans, people that refuse to answer the question, and climate change. All came in tied at 3% of likely voters as the most important problem facing the country today. So see, 3 out of every 100 voting people know that climate change is going to destroy us. And that's why it's in the top 10-ish. Think about it for a minute. Look at how much money, time, effort, and how much we've destroyed ourselves to save the planet, when only 3% of the people think that it's even a problem. I mean, this is a bigger failure than the war on drugs, by far. But you know, they know better than the rest of us silly monkeys. But to be fair, that's now. This platform was written for the 2020 election, and as we know, the climate was definitely (laughs) top of mind back then, with all the death and destruction going on, I mean, right after the economy and healthcare, of course, and then the Supreme Court appointments, COVID, violent crime, foreign policy, gun policy, race and ethnic inequality, immigration and economic inequality. Oh, and there it is right there. Climate change right before the very last one on the list, abortion. Yeah, see, in every poll that's been taken since the myth of man-caused global warming or cooling was pushed out, their climate has ranked among the last of the issues that anyone actually cares about because literally the typical human can see it's a farce. But Democrats aren't typical humans, now are they? Oh no, they're a special breed all unto themselves. The nice thing is that with just a little, you know, fact learning, a little honesty, some help with common sense and logic, the average Democrat can find him or herself, because at that point in their education, they'll understand that those are the only two actual choices, a solid Republican. Because for the most part, we generally run on truth and reality. But not these political Democrats. It takes something big to move one of them. Like, for instance, the recent parting of the ways of Tulsi Gabbard. And what was the something big? Well, to be honest, it was the evil. It boils down to the absolute evil that's running rampant in the Democrat Party. She didn't use those words, but that's what she said. So before we run too long, let's see what they want to do about climate change and climate justice. I'll try to move fairly quickly. We know that's a lie, as most of this is widely known. And let's be honest, without even looking at it, We both know that it's about spending money, taxing more, something about how climate targets people of color because whites are like climate Teflon or something. I don't know. Let's go. Let's start by their problem setup. Quote The last four years have seen record breaking storms, devastating wildfires, and historic floods. Urban and rural communities alike have suffered tens of billions of dollars in economic losses. Dams have failed catastrophically in Michigan. Farmers' crops have been drowned in their fields across the Midwest. Coastal communities from Florida to New Jersey are facing an existential crisis as a result of sea level rise and stronger storms. Thousands of Americans have died, and President Trump still callously and willfully denies the science that explains why so many are suffering. Trump was actually a believer in climate change, but that's neither here nor there. So here's the thing. What we've seen with record-breaking storms is uh, cyclical. Uh, that's why they're called 100-year this or 1,000-year that, because people used to understand that these come back around from time to time. Uh, the dams have failed. Well, we're literally stopping the course of nature, so if we get more than it was designed for, uh, that's what happens. And the first of my two favorite lines, the existential crisis of those from Florida to New Jersey, but but just to New Jersey, not like Maine or Massachusetts or Connecticut or Rhode Island, only up to New Jersey. <laughs> okay, well, the Dems know best, I guess, right? Well, if they're questioning their very chance at survival because of all the sea level rise, which equates to you know, approximately zero inches since they started screeching about it, then why don't they move? I mean, even just a bit, a few miles farther inland. But But no, everyone from the common person to the uber-rich, including the climate activists, seem to build their homes right on the water which is really curious, isn't it? Eh. Anyway, my second favorite line, and I'll quote this one verbatim, quote, thousands of Americans have died. Well, I mean, you can't dispute that. That's an unqualified sentence, right? You show me how thousands haven't died. Every single year, in fact. Okay, yeah, I know. The implication is that the climate did it, but that's not what they said. Apparently, per their statement, if we fix the climate... We become immortals, which, uh, I mean, that's a solid side benefit, right? If you're into that sort of thing. And as if by divine intervention, the next paragraph says that the communities of color and the low-income families, and don't forget the indigenous communities, are being disproportionately affected. We whiteys are just the worst. You know, Uh, they're being denied clean drinking water. They have no wastewater infrastructure. None of it. They're being denied that. Uh, Yeah, You didn't know that, did you? I bet you didn't. Oh, and all of our island areas, our state of Hawaii, our territories, they're being flooded and swallowed up by the sea. Huh, bet you didn't know that either, did you? And why not? Well, because you don't care. How do you sleep at night? The answer, of course, and I'm so thankful they at least even shared the answer in concept with us, you know, more on conservatives is, quote, build a thriving, equitable and globally competitive clean energy economy that puts workers and communities first and leaves no one behind. And then they say that they'll rebuild the economy from the COVID pandemic and, quote, President Trump's recession all through a clean energy revolution. So I got to pause right here and ask, uh, are you buying this? We've had one hurricane and a lot of hurricane fear porn this hurricane season, but but just the one. And it was a bad one, to be sure, but but still one. And are people being encroached by the sea? Are they being overwhelmed by the sea? I mean, there are memes going around right now that show beachfront property with some immovable landmark picture taken from the same perspective. And you have two pictures, 20. 30, 40 years apart, and it shows that the water level is um, unchanged. It's identical. Now, are the islands being covered with the oceans? (laughs) And let's think about this economy thing, this Trump recession thing. Just a minute. The recession was because of COVID. It was one month, and Trump already had us out of the recession, and the economy starting to fire back up. Then President Vegetable took over. So I gotta ask, two years in, are we better or worse? Has Biden and his team of hippie tree-hugging Marxists made our world and our economy better or worse? Okay. Well, they go on to say that we're running out of time, that we can grow the economy and save the planet at the same time. They'll create oodles of wonderful climate-y jobs, quote, with an eye to equality, access, benefits, and ownership opportunities for frontline communities. Because Democrats believe we must embed environmental justice, economic justice, and climate justice at the heart of our policy and governing agenda. Oh, oh, I'm sure they do. Just read uh, justice as uh, socialism, at the very least. Really communism, when you look into what they mean by justice. I just don't think we need another communist nation in this world. I mean, uh, what about you? So they were going to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Those in agreement even admitted that if every country that signed did everything perfectly... It would do literally nothing, but it'll cost us a ton of money and destroy our gas and oil infrastructure and melt our electric grid. So, I mean, that's something. Oh, and I missed a prediction. I forgot about union jobs. Yes, we definitely don't want any of those non-union scumbags doing anything except dying and becoming fertilizer. We want all unions all the time. So, a goal. They agree that we must be net zero with regard to greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, And who can disagree with that right in fact it's so important that a lot of rich guys have had to fly all over the world just constantly in order to talk about it so maybe do your part please and stop using your heat and your ac stop driving your car and if you could just stop eating meat and breathing that would also help thank you let's try to speed this up what do they want to do specifically okay here's a laundry list Power Plant Total Carbon Emissions Elimination by 2035. In five years, so that's 2025, they'll install, they're going to, they will install 500 million solar panels, which includes 8 million solar roofs and community solar systems, and also 60,000 wind turbines. They're going to build sustainable and resilient energy grids, powering it with clean energy, utilizing highly paid labor union labor, to build and man this infrastructure. Your energy bill will be lowered. Well, if you're low income and in government housing, as you're going to make upgrades to up to 2 million units within five years, which will create hundreds of thousands of jobs. That's their words. More tax incentives for the low-income people to upgrade their homes. Net zero greenhouse gas emissions for all new buildings by 2030. Within five years, they'll have tens of billions of dollars apparently available to incentivize the private sector to retrofit their buildings. Electric vehicles just just everywhere, just all the time. And they'll be made here at home with United states labor, but not Tesla. He can go straight to H-E-double hockey sticks because he doesn't use union labor and his lips aren't chapped from kissing the Democrats' collective rear end. So, you know, we hate him. All half a million school buses will transition to American-made, zero-emission vehicles within five years. 2025 coming up, I wonder what they're going to do with the old buses. I sure hope they have a windmill powered industrial sized crusher shredder in the budget plan. They'll also transition 3 million federal, state, and local fleet vehicles to zero emission. They'll install 500,000 public charging stations, totally free, except for what they charge you, and super fast, except for the ones that aren't, and except for all of the broken ones, and super fast is a relative term. Plus, If you live in a metroplex of 100,000 people or more, you, my friend, will get some sweet zero emission public transport. You ever been on the L in Chicago or the subway in New York City? Oh, man, that is going to be awesome. Think light rail and buses, walking and biking paths. Oh, it's going to be so nice. Everything is awesome when you're part of the team. And freight infrastructure, you know, ports, rail, shipping, all of that stuff will be modernized as well. Now, this will all be done with American made stuff in order to, quote, build a clean, equitable and globally competitive manufacturing sector, including national buy clean and buy America standards to incentivize production of low carbon building and construction materials like steel, cement, timber here in the United States. Wow, that sounds great. Am I right? And if we do have to get crap from other countries, oh, those monsters will pay a new carbon adjustment fee. In fact, unless they do exactly what the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, the one that won't actually result in anything, unless they do what that tells them to do. Oh, and we're not done yet. They'll partner with farmers to be the first in the entire world to be net zero emissions, which will make more food and use less water and keep water cleaner and make farmers more money and the land will be happier and the trees will sing and colors will be brighter, etc. We have more rights. The right to breathe clean air, drink clean water, and live without fear of exposure to toxic waste. Of course, my question, where are these rights written down and who gave them to us? Because I don't think those are literally rights. I mean, I I want those things, but I don't think they're literally rights. And as we all know, communities of color, low income and indigenous people, they don't have any of that anywhere, ever. They can't even get there. We just we keep them away from it. So they're going to create an environmental justice fund to, you know, level things out. Uh, They're going to work with farmers who grow food, right, to eliminate pesticides and fertilizer usage. You know, the stuff that makes it possible to grow food in the quantities needed to avoid mass starvation. They're going to plant millions of trees in urban areas and install community solar. Mm, Nice. Expand access to green spaces and outdoor recreation. And in everything, they'll make sure that they achieve socioeconomic equity when doing all of these things they're apparently going to do. When disaster strikes, they're committed to building back better. I heard that before, with not just the old garbage systems that worked so well for so long, but with new green technology that everyone is just clamoring for. They're going to focus on prioritizing preparedness and resilience, especially for those that struggle to cope with disasters the most, the old, the poor, the disabled, because we know more bad stuff is coming, quote, extreme weather events, heat stress, and increases in disease that scientists have connected to climate change. Well, if scientists have... They're going to fix FEMA, didn't know it was broken, restore wetlands and smartly spend, that was their words, even more money to mitigate all the bad things that this climate change is bringing. Public companies will have to disclose climate risks and greenhouse gas emissions. (laughs) Oh, you know, it wouldn't stop there. Not only in their own business, but in their entire supply chain. They're going to invest in scientists and inventors and entrepreneurs around the world, apparently to make the U.S. the leader in innovation, including energy storage, heavy duty trucking and freight, jet fuels, direct air capture, and oh, I like this one, net negative emissions. They're going to want us to actually suck greenhouse gases out of the air now. (laughs) I wonder if the plants and trees are going to be happy about that. They're going to preserve the precious land they've stolen from the states and deemed wildlife refuges and national parks and things like that, and they want to conserve 30% of our lands and waters by 2030. And that's it. It's, It's just that simple. Now, some of you scoffers out there may say this seems a just a tad ambitious. And I mean, they're only going to reshape the entire, you know, everything, economy, infrastructure, supply chain, land management, employment, etc. Most of it done by 2030, 2035, some of it by 2025. So let me ask you, are they doing this? I mean, yes, we, we see some things, but are they seriously making any strides to do any of this? Better question, do they intend to do any of this? I mean, the answer is no, right? We all know that. They have no intention of doing any of this stuff. As all politicians are, they're nothing but hot air blowers. You want to reduce global temperature? Tape the mouths of politicians shut. Their intent is to do some things, token measures, to say how hard they're trying. Oh, if it only wasn't for those darned Republicans. They know how the political cycle goes. They know that there's a solid chance that by 2025, at best, they'll have a lame duck president that can't get anything done. And then by 2030, they'll likely not have the presidency anymore. See, they're liars, plain and simple. And if I were to ask you, looking at all of these things that they say they're going to do, and looking at the state of our economy and infrastructure with the few things that they have done, are we better or worse? So if they were to push us farther down the, cl- uh, uh, the road in the direction that they're laying out, would that make us more better or more worser? Their intent is not to fix anything. In fact, they know that nothing is really broken. They need the anger, the vitriol, the fear porn, the empty platitudes and promises in order to tax more and redistribute more and to continue getting votes. To prove that they have no goal, no data, no point in any of this, ask them one simple question. What is the correct temperature of the planet? See, if my child has a fever, like they say the planet does, my goal is to get her back to 98.6 degrees American. If the planet allegedly has a fever, shouldn't they have a goal? But their goal is always, we must avoid going up. But why? Says who? And how do we know the correct temperature to begin with? Especially since there have been periods much colder than now and also hotter than now. See, if my kid just got done playing a sport and her temperature is above 98.6, what I'd do as a reasonable, rational person is think, well, this is normal, and it'll come down in a period of time. What these climate deniers, because those that preach man-caused global warming are literally the climate deniers, these climate alarmists, what they're doing is ignoring the fact that everything, and I mean everything in all of creation, has a natural frequency, a natural vibration. The global temperature is no different. God set it up this way. We have a huge burning orb in concert with huge liquid heat sinks. And together, they very slowly, over very long periods of time, modulate the temperature of the Earth, up and down and again and again, between two boundaries, neither of which we actually know. So all you need to do to expose their hypocrisy is ask them the correct global temperature and how they know. Because all they know is that they don't want it to be different than it is right now. And they can make a whole lot of money and tax a lot of money by having that non-goal goal. Additionally, they're working on implementing a little World Economic Forum tool called ESG. That stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Basically, this is a credit score for businesses and people. You. This is not a conspiracy. This is stated fact. You can see a link in the notes. You'll be tracked everywhere you go and everything you do. If your justice scores are where they need to be, you'll have access to necessary things like, you know, food and your money, and even maybe extra things like the public transport they're going to shove us all onto. If you score low because you just hate justice and equity, then your privileges will be drastically cut and eliminated, and <laughs> and you might be eliminated. China's already doing this with the social aspect, at least. The environmental sins and the business playing ball with the government parts, those are coming soon, and it's all coming here. They're working on it. Fortunately, a lot of states are starting to push back. Not enough yet. Enough to slow it down, yeah, but, but not enough to kill it like the hell beast it is. All of this is being done for three reasons. Power, control, and money. The big three. Those three have been the idols of man since the fall of man. And there's nothing new today. As I've said many times before, the all-electric society can't possibly work. We simply don't produce that much electricity. And even if we could, our grid, the wires carrying the electricity, they literally can't supply that kind of demand. They aren't designed for it. The grid will literally melt. The intent is not to grow the infrastructure in order to have everyone with two or three electric cars, all electric appliances, electric heat and AC, electric logistics, etc. The goal is actually to shrink the population or at least shrink the expectations, the, the lifestyle of the population. Cities of 100,000 or more, and likely much, much more, will be created so that public transportation can and must be used to bring us wherever we're told to go. And it's at least for now an observable fact that large cities are heavily liberal, socialist. So this herding of humanity into city pods like this, that'll help accomplish that political swing as well. Additionally, not only do they know this is impossible, they know it isn't needed. Now, I've covered this before, so I won't do it again, but I'll put a link in the notes to the blog from the Competitive Enterprise Institute with a list of 50 years of failed environmental apocalypse predictions. They can't predict climate over time. They don't even have the tools to do so. When they talk about global temperature, the data they're using is about as unscientific as it possibly can be, and even with that, they manipulate it to make it say what they want. So these elites, those that are pushing all of these edicts, these X, Y, Z by 2030 mandates onto us, they have no intention of doing anything, at least nothing that will affect them, because they know it's all a ruse. It's a a fairy tale. It's a lie. Politics, by its very nature, is destructive to an individual. The quest for the big three is ever-present, and this is why our system was supposed to be set up for the people to get rid of compromised or self-important representatives every two years and the state to get rid of the senators every six years, if not sooner. But we've turned those positions into lifetime appointments, and the corruption grows and grows with every year. The Christian thing to do is to get these people out of office while they're still public servants, rather than let them go cold and dark. But we don't do that. We find our favorite horse and ride him until he dies or until he dies inside. We find our single-issue champion, and we overlook everything else. We as Christians, need to look at every issue critically. Very critically. We're not called to just take someone's word for it, no matter how much we trust them. We are the holders and keepers of logic, reason, and rationality. We, to a far greater extent, should be weighing and judging every claim for veracity, honesty, and rationality. I don't advocate for anyone to be a single-issue voter. However, each issue has its own weight, Some issues could easily be a single-issue vote decider. So is climate change and climate justice a single-issue vote caster? I would say probably not, but it's being used to perpetrate theft, control, and a long game of a type of slavery of humanity. Politicians as a whole should not be trusted as a baseline, and then as we work through their platforms, and through individual voting records, through policies, and we weigh it all against the Bible or at the very least biblical principles, we can then go from no trust to a certain level of trust, or not. In this case, there are many on the right that agree in large part with this climate agenda, unfortunately. now They've either bought into the lies themselves without doing their work, or they're seeing the potential for the big three for themselves. We are supposed to be caretakers of the earth, but not earth worshipers. We should strive to do things better and cleaner, but we should not sacrifice freedom or humanity itself in our pursuit. God told us to care for the earth, but to use it and fill it up. The Democrats want to empty it out and stop using it. As Satan does, he twists God's commands, his blessings, and convinces us to follow our lusts, which ends with us ignoring God and ignoring the way we know is right, the way we've been clearly instructed in, And we do it our own way, also known as the wrong way, also known as the sinful way. The mandate to care for the earth has, like everything else, been twisted and disfigured into putting the earth above humanity. It is a religion. This is a great, glaring indicator that it's gone too far. The left as a party are worshipping at the altar of climatism. By definition, this would be evil. They've chosen their god, and thus we should not choose them. I don't place this issue as high as some others, like abortion, the drive to groom and destroy our children, but this is another false god they're willing to sacrifice humanity, and in reality, our kids and grandkids too. This must not be allowed to happen. And with that, we'll wrap up this episode, looking at the Democrat Party platform. Now, in our next episode, we're going to talk about how they want to restore something that's never actually existed. Our democracy. And we've never been a democracy. We're a constitutional or a representative republic. A democracy is just one step from socialism, which is just one step from communism. And this is why the constant drumbeat of calling our system of government a democracy. If they say it long enough and loud enough, maybe they can make it happen. But that's for next time. So until then, thanks for listening. Now go plant your car and plug in your trees. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.